Okay. Welcome to Culture Hackers. Such an honor to be here. Mm. Am I going to be hacked? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Culture Hackers, you're on with me, Robbie Richmond, and Robin Soul, author of the Charisma Code. You can find her work at Robin Soul, S O L. Dot com mm. and I am so honored to have her here because you know I've realized that if I go into a situation thinking I'm the smartest person in the room it's really not going to go well you know so when I'm working with companies or teams just understanding that their wisdom is right there in the room is so absolutely key and it's by getting really curious and inquisitive and, and intuitive and tapping into all that that I'm really can be of great service to a team and it, you know a lot of that can can come through asking great questions and i've got to say there there are a few better question askers than robin soul um <laughs> so it's it's a delight to have you on here mm-hmm. to ask me some questions and um i will ask you some questions too and uh it, I, I think you're one of the best in the world at it Wow, that's, I mean, that's a huge honor. I'm, I am bowing in a non-physical way right now. <laughs> Thank you, Robbie. Yeah, I, and I would say, you know, if I'm the best question asker in the world, uh-huh. my gosh, that's a good one. And the best, watch it, Oprah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> There's a lot of excellent question askers, but, but I know that you recognize the power of a good question, and I think that it is one of the things that is most overseen in our world right now. And so I love that not only do you appreciate that I ask questions and that you're letting me ask you questions because you're one of the people that I want to know things from, but you also use it in your work. When you do culture work with companies, that's one of your primary tools, no? Oh, yeah. How do you use the the question in a company situation? Well, um, I, I start off with the basics, which are what really frustrates you and what you really want. To me, those are the two basic needs, right? What do you what are you upset with and you want to stop, and what do you really desire and want? And that's that's the start of it, and that kind of gets the conversation going. And then after that, you know, sometimes sometimes it has to go deeper. Like, what do you really want? Mm. You know, what do you really want? Like, what's that going to get you? Um, but otherwise, I find it just comes from from intuition as to what's emerging. Like I remember a very distinct moment when I was working with a, a class and a guy was asking a question. And he was saying, well, what do I do about people who – and he starts going on. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking this isn't the real issue here. Like this is – he's almost trying to derail me. Like that's not the real issue. And rather than say that, the question came to mind – to ask him directly, I said, before we even go there, I want to ask you one question first. Do you really give a shit about your people? <laughs> and he just stopped dead in his tracks and just looked at me and was just like, honestly, I don't know. And I said, thank you. Oh, Thank wow. you for being that honest because that's where we've got to start. Fantastic. I mean, that actually must be rare, I would think, in the business Very world rare. to find that kind of honesty. Yeah. I mean, it's rare to find that in an individual, let alone in an owner of a company who thinks that he needs or she needs to keep it all together. Right. But like you like you know, it's all about creating that safe space, right? So I think he could sense my intention wasn't to embarrass him. It was, it was locking in with his frequency and saying, wait, I get where you're at, and that's okay. But we've got to be real with each other here before we're going to go any further. How did you get the guts to ask him such a straightforward question, Robbie? 
it was weird that it wasn't a matter of guts. It was just so loud in my head that that was the question that I didn't actually have another choice, oddly. And how is asking the honest question of why do you want this an important part of creating or helping create um, an architecture for a cultural architecture for a company? A great question. I think it's because doing things for the wrong reasons are just a recipe for disaster. And I see it constantly where people I've done it myself in my career where you're doing something to get something else. I've landed up in the hospital that way when I've started like like businesses and stuck with them when and I had that perseverance not because I was enjoying the process because it was like what it would get me. Oh, if I do this, if I launch this product, it'll get me this feeling, this money, this result, this success. I wasn't enjoying the process. So if if you're not enjoying the process, I've just seen firsthand both to myself or when you're doing it to your employees, it's almost like you're using them. I'm using the culture. I'm using the company. I'm using the customers to get what I want. We have to know why we're doing anything. How in the world would something that seems that elementary not be more employed by every human being on the planet? Why do we not know why we're doing what we're doing? It's a great question. I think, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that we're conditioned. You know, it's, it's just, I heard somebody say recently that, that belief is just conditioned thought. It's just a belief is just a thought that you've had many times over. And so if you've had that thought many times over that I should be doing this, or I need to be doing this, or, or, or you need to be doing that, that's, that's how belief happens. And we get entrained into these modes of being. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So in a way, I mean, you could say culture hacking, you're, you're also you're not just hacking how to make a new culture or how to make a better culture, but you're hacking what makes up culture, the conditioning within a specific culture, right? You're hacking, you're getting in there, you're you're playing with it, you're figuring out its systems. Right. Well, the way I like to approach it is is just it's almost mere like of just saying, look, here's what's going on. And I don't ever pressure people to change or do something differently. I just like to show them what's really happening, and they get to make the decision is what they do with that. So with that person, I didn't say that he has to give a shit about his people or not. Maybe he does and wants to all of a sudden, or maybe he's like, you know, I'm in the wrong business. I want to go into investing, and that's all I want to do, and great. I have no judgment either way. But by showing him what's going on, he's empowered now to make the choice. That is so Western, non-Western-minded of you. I mean, that's what the first thing that comes to my head is I think mm-hmm. of – the Western mindset is being about do, do, make, happen, give formula. Do, 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 make, happen, give formula. <laughs> do, do, make, happen, must happen, must happen, must happen, do formula. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is that you've actually found it to be much more effective not to go in with the do, do, here's your prescription. And instead, the real hack comes by here, let me show you a mirror of what's actually going on here. Totally. So why don't people, why, why isn't it just so natural for them to see what's going on for themselves? Why do they need a mirror? Why do they need you to come in there? Um, I think it's because I'm detached. You know, I, I honestly don't care which direction they go. And it's it, like uh, sometimes, you know how if somebody's of your family member, they really care about you and they may be trying to give you advice, but it's so triggering because they it's almost like they care too much. Yes. And because of that, it's hard to hear their message because yes. they want you to change so much because they care about your happiness so much. <laughs> and you can't hear that. You know, you just hear all the noise with it. But if, when somebody's presenting you something and they honestly don't care which way you go and they just want to give you that and say, here's what I see, then all those triggers are down. And then you can just really see it clearly. You know, that's what I know about you, 
Robbie Richman as a human being as well, just as a friend, as somebody who has the honor and privilege of getting to know you, mm-hmm. what I see is that you just give yourself. You just give what is real and you let the world do what it will with you. <laughs> and, you know, as as somebody who's looked into charisma, yeah. I consider that to be, if not the most important, one of the top three important characteristics of a charismatic. Do you have a word for that? Like, what do you call that? Call what? Well, what you we're just described. Just, oh, my gosh. Um, let's find one right now. <laughs> okay. So what we're, what we're seeking to define is somebody who really doesn't care what the outside world thinks of them because they are so strong in their own personal values. They're so strong in just who they are. They trust that what they feel is mm. what they feel. And then they, are, they trust their ability to articulate that to the yeah. outside world. So conviction, would you say? There's definitely courage. What's nice about conviction is it leads my head to the um, courage of one's convictions, right? Because I think it takes an incredible amount of courage to do what we just talked about. What you do and what you're asking the companies to do or what you're facilitating the companies to do. An incredible amount of courage. I don't know why it takes so much courage. I do. It's because we're social beings Mm -hmm. and our very survival depends on being liked. Right. Absolutely. So when you're going into a company... And you're saying, look, this culture, this thing that you created that says, I will get to keep my job here mm-hmm. if I maintain the rules and regulations of this culture. You're going in and saying, um, can we do it better? Can we actually, does it not have to be that way? Can it be another way that would be more effective for you as a group mm-hmm. to socially feel like you still are safe here, right? Yeah. Well, I, I what I ideally like to hear is I, I want them to feel like they're the geniuses rather than me. You know, like when I give the culture hacking speech, I loved hearing somebody stand up and say to the whole crowd, they said, oh, I get it. I can do this. I got this. Yes. And they were like, they, they, it's like they had the tools. They, they could see the matrix. They like, they're, they're on it. And, and they didn't even mention me after that. Like, I, I love that to, to just show them what's going on, give them the tools. And then they feel really smart because then they have this new lens. Right, and, and you, but there there is a breaking that's happening. Even though you're you're explaining it in the most gentle of terms, mm-hmm. you're saying, "Here's a mirror. You don't like this one part? Okay, I hear you. Oh, you like this one part? Oh, I hear you. Oh, you want this part? Oh, I hear you. Okay, yeah. now then, let's cultivate another culture here. Let's architect another culture. Do I do I hear that right? Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm, I'm I realize I'm getting lost in my own thoughts around it. Mm. Um, so yeah. <laughs> it's because what what made me think of was is something I do on stage. It's it's actually a speech hack that I rarely mention, um, and I'll give it away right now. Ow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's because it's it's so powerful, um, and it's so basic, and it's it's silence. It's my most powerful speaking tool. You remember you're seeing me speak about relevance. The, mo- the most powerful way to make speaking relevant is silence because it gives time for somebody to just hear where they're at, understand where they're at, process it, and be with it. Whereas when you say everything really fast, they never get the chance to just be with what you're saying. They're trying to catch up to the next point, to the next point, to the next point. So that silence allows them to, to make it their own mm-hmm. and make it relevant. And it's it's it if if you're not used to it, it can feel awkward, you know. And but it's 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 a gift. What do you think it takes for someone to 
give the gift of silence. It takes shutting up. <laughs> that's, it, that's why it's amazing hack because it's just so simple. <laughs> like you know, you you. Um, um, I remember I was talking to a friend of mine, um, and he was talking about this fight that he was having with his wife. And it, he, he said what he learned was she would bring something up that was really, like, irrational, but she was really passionate about it. And she would, like, lay into him. And before, he used to kind of fight it back. And now he said, he's, he said a great line. He said, I let silence do the work. He said, I just let her talk. And then even when she's done, he's just, he just looks at her and just sits. As if waiting, like, is there, is there a request here? Is there something more you need to say? Anything. Like, there's space for it now. Oh. And he said the silence does the heavy lifting. Oh. I mean, I I will say as a receiver of somebody who has received silence in her days Mm -hmm. that it really does do the heavy lifting. And it's amazing that, I mean, what, what, what an ultimate hack. And I do think, though, there's a reason why people aren't using it. What do you mean? I mean, oh, well, I was going to ask you. But <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise everyone would, wouldn't they? Just kind of like, why isn't everybody doing the diet or something that makes the body that is supposed to be the good body? Like, why isn't everybody using silence? I think I think that, well, first of all, there's no, there's probably no the diet and there's probably no the speak hack. But, I mean, silence probably wouldn't work in every situation. But I think that in general, the fear that I've seen come up in myself when I think I'm holding more space for silence, but I'm not, is that I want to make sure you're with me. Right. I want to make sure that you're with me. Yeah. Like, are you there? You got, am I engaged? Are we engaging you? You got it? <laughs> and I think that, again, it takes courage, you know? The thing I keep coming back to you, Robbie, the more that I know you, is that I'm impressed with your courage. I think it is rare to live the way that you live. Thank you. What, what comes to mind when you say that? Just for, I, I've heard a few at lunch that we were at lunch, and I just want to make it relevant for the audience. If you think there's a relevant mm. example, if not, we'll just yeah, keep moving. I do actually. I'm okay. going to be really bold and authentic right now. Yeah, okay. One of the things that I think you and I share is an appreciation for authenticity, yeah. courage, and the ability to follow what we actually feel. Yeah. So we meet on camaraderie that way, mm-hmm. and at lunch, here's my authentic share. <laughs> at lunch, what Robbie did. Is he, uh, he basically, you know, I, I, I just launched a website and I was really excited about it. I hadn't shown it to, in fact, he was the only second person I had shown it to. And, uh, and I was, I really genuinely, I've launched a number of websites in my life. I was genuinely excited about this and the work that I put into it. And Robbie gave me in no non-specific <laughs> terms, I mean, the most specific terms he come with about what was wrong with it, the thing that I thought was the best about it <laughs> and how it was really, um, I had missed the mark. And that actually what I was demonstrating by doing what I did on my website is I was demonstrating my lack of, I think your words were, um, or you could see that I was embarrassed, mm-hmm. that I wasn't fully in my, in my current, my, my courage, my conviction, my, um, saying I do this thing, I am this person by, by, displaying what I thought was the strongest part of the website, it was, in Robbie's opinion, the weakest part. And he was very clear about telling me that. Now, in our culture at large, when you are confronted with something that um, 
that it's kind of like your baby. I mean, it's my website at this moment is a bit like a child to me. I mean, mm-hmm. in the sense that it's a creation, right? right? It's a creation. So I care about it. And you just said that my child is lost. <laughs> you got an ugly baby. <laughs> you got an ugly child. And actually, more than that, you're showing a part of yourself that's kind of ugly. Mm. You pointed out the part of me that I am like doing it's like what like somebody like using a lot of hair gel that's really awful but it's because they're trying to like they're balding or something and they want to try to like push the hair forward Uh so that it looks better but then like there's an it's obviously an insecurity like maybe they don't really like it and well did they shave their head because of why i mean (laughs) all these things that we do yeah and you pointed that out to me yeah so your courage to do that Mm. as is that actually there was no there was only a couple moments of awfulness and the awfulness was just like, I just don't want to do it again. Mm. But more than that, it was the joy of having somebody who was brave enough and willing to look me straight in the eyes at something that you knew must be important to me. Yes. Yes. You knew this was important course, to me. And he, Robbie, by the way, is my mentor. I'm, I'm, I am learning and beginning to help companies with culture. So here you have your mentor coming there with no, not a formal mentor, but certainly you are. I look mm-hmm. up to you saying that my website sucks. <laughs> so, you know, and I could, I think the fear would be from you or from anybody that's strong and bold enough to say how they feel is that I would react terribly, mm. that I would get defensive, right? Yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be the reason you wouldn't tell me? Right. Right. right? I mean, I could have. Right. And instead it was like, I, I, felt a release. He said, how do you feel? I said, I feel liberated and frustrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. So that's a share of one of the ways that I see you holding the courage of your convictions mm-hmm. and from demonstrating who you are in the world. Thank you. Yep. Appreciate holding that. back. Yeah, me too. You probably hurt a lot of people. <laughs> and, and, but what? That's the price we pay to make a cultural shift, to make a change, to help somebody, to hold the mirror up is how you would probably say it. That's the price you pay to hold the mirror up. Yeah. Yeah. And as we were saying before, I just, I, I realized for me that it became way too painful not to say it because I would think about it afterward. Like, oh, I should have said that. I should have said that. And it would, it would literally stick with me for weeks. Mm. I mean, weeks. Mm. Just a, a line like that. Mm. And I was like, you know what? It's because in the moment, it's sometimes it, it, it is awkward or feels uncomfortable or I mean I, I feel like you create such a great safe space that part of it was I know that you're dedicated to growth you're dedicated to learning you're you're a very open person um, so in, in some sense you you're an easy audience to be working with that kind of, of situation but that's you know certainly not everybody yeah and it's certainly going into a company and saying it to their CEOs it would take it would take a certain individual to do that yeah I have a question for you yeah Culture. Mm-hmm. I imagine you get asked this probably more than any other question, but I, as somebody who studies culture, want to know and want to ask in this moment, Robbie Richmond, what is culture? <laughs> yeah, I laugh because it's 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 almost like this placeholder word for everything. It's what's going on. And, and in, the, in the company context, I explain it as everything that's not the actual business model. It's anything that you would experience regardless of the industry, meaning it's, it's all forms of communication and, and relating. I like to think of it as the invisible. It's what's in between people. Mm, yes. 
Yeah, it's it's like the it, 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 system dynamics really shows that the um, the power of any system is in the interconnections of the elements. So, for example, you can take all take all the exact elements of um, of football, but then change the rules to soccer. You've got all the same field players, ball, all that stuff. But just by changing the relationship between players and their relationship to the ball, you've got an entirely new game. So that's where culture exists in those communications, those interconnections, those rules. That's where I'm really fascinated. Like, um, I forget who was saying it, but was talking about how music is the, the, a song has the same notes no matter who sings it. But it's that space in between notes that really creates the difference between somebody playing it on the piano who's really proficient versus somebody who doesn't know it well. Those same exact notes. They're playing the exact same notes. The space in between is what makes it art. It's the sexiest space ever. <laughs> <laughs> and it is an art, isn't it? Yeah. And it's like it's like the, the it's like Wi-Fi. I always I think of culture as like Wi-Fi. Like it's 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 sort of. Um, it, it's invisible, yeah. but it's hitting machines and making things happen that we can visually see once it goes through the machine. That's a great analogy. I love you that. Like that. I really yeah. love that. And, and, but, but what I think is that it's this Wi-Fi, this culture is affecting us that deeply. Yes. All the time. <laughs> We're being programmed by it. Yeah. Where do you experience that? Like, do you experience yourself being programmed? Hmm, what an excellent question. Do I experience myself being programmed? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And well, here's an interesting thing. What that question leads me to is I think I'm aware of it most of the time. Hmm. And yet, simultaneously, the thing that overrides culture for me, or at least at least allows me to know how I can most intelligently respond to culture, Yeah is the way my body feels. Mm. So like a tightness in my gut mm -hmm. or a shortness of breath or um, um, a lightheaded heaviness in my head or a joy in my, in my heart. You know, those are the things that to me feel like they let me know what to do with the information that's coming through the Wi-Fi that's coming to me, the cultural Wi-Fi that's coming through my body. Yeah. It's like, how do I want to respond? Well, that, that program, that message, that cultural message made me feel, made my stomach clench up. Do I, what do I need to do there? Do I just need to breathe into that? Mm. Do I need to, let me make sure that I'm really, I'm really with this one, you know, instead yeah. of just reacting to it. Nice. How about you? Um, I, I've, I'm coming to believe that, that all thought, like, not, I wouldn't say all thought, but more like all internal monologue is programming. Wow. Yeah. Because I've really come to know this. We were talking about the sensory deprivation tanks, the flotation tanks. Yeah. And it's amazing how much I can feel this, this dichotomy between myself and my thoughts that there's... There's me, who's this kind of observer, and that there are these thoughts going on. Like, if you think about it, where where do thoughts come from? Where where are they really coming from? And so I noticed this voice would just be saying lots of things, and it, it just became, wait a minute, this is like, this is a, a, a conditioned response. 
It's I don't I honestly don't know what it is, but it's only in these deep meditative states that I found that wait a minute, there is some kind of split between thought and me. Oh yes, thank you. Yeah. Right, and you think that all thoughts at some level are programming. Right, because why are you thinking that particular thing? You can usually bring it back to some past experience you had, but you're you're not your past experience. You've been through all of these, but. You know, like I'll have we were we were talking about um, you know me using the credit card and and in, in relationship to when I didn't have money versus when I do, and I've got this response that happens in these thoughts of what if I don't have enough in my account, right? It's from this past experience. The past experience wasn't me, but that programmed my brain to think, oh my god, what if I don't have enough funds in my account? So those thoughts are programmed by whatever you want to call it the the experiences we've had from our from our parents from other kids all these experiences add up into this accumulated program that that says this happens in the world and i'm going to have this thought back this person sucks i like this i don't like that i want this i don't want that where are all those coming from mm, culture i mean the, the the culture is is the mass for it that's why i actually um I, I love um, getting away from culture as soon as possible in the yes. sense of that it's it's just a catch-all word for something much deeper. Which so is. when somebody says – it doesn't it – does, it, it, it can be anything. So when somebody says to me, oh, culture is really weird or culture is hard or culture is strange, I'm like, what do you mean by that? Where do you experience that? And it always comes down to one moment. Like you can always bring anything down to a moment if you keep saying to somebody, can you be more specific or can you give me an example? And only when you get into a moment can you actually see what's really going on there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. You're saying, I mean, you're saying have awareness of what's actually going on, right? In any moment, have awareness of what's going on as opposed to this catch-all giant culture thing that has, it's really not that conceptually. Mm -hmm. it's, it's much more about how we're interrelating in a moment. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's it's this abstraction of words that gets us hypnotized. So if, if you say something like, you know what, I hate ignorance. I really hate ignorance. And I say, well, what do you mean? Like, what what's an example? You know, and then we break it down. You know, like, okay, well, you, you hate ignorance about racial issues. Well, where do you experience that? You know, is it in your own life that it's happening? Is it on TV that you see it? Where is it in that moment? And then we can get to specifically what it is. As opposed to using one big catch-all word, which gets really dangerous, I think. Because that's where we start making big assumptions. That's where we start including something in everything. Oh, all people are this. I've, I've always found that whenever I'm talking with somebody who says, use, uses absolutes, it's always this way. Or everything is that. Or nothing is that. They're in like this childlike state. And it's almost like you can't talk to them. Like it's dangerous to try to talk in that situation because anybody who's using absolute statements like that is is hypnotized by their own beliefs. What culture have you found there to be the least amount use of absolute statements? It's mm, a great question. And I want to be clear about when I ask culture, I mean, I'll use your definition. When there's more than one person present, there's a culture present. Right. Right. It's a great question. Um, personally, I've I've only experienced it in um, in small groups where where we we come together and there's there's enough people for it to be a group dynamic, but small enough that we can all like really relate to each other and hear each other. 
And I noticed I kind of collect people like this. Like I collect people who are um, who are really open mind, who can hold conviction and open mindedness mm. at the same time. Yes, my favorite kind as well. Yeah. Yep. And um, so the Robbie culture. <laughs> <laughs> I gave Robbie a cap today, um, a liberty cap that's been worn by revolutionaries through time, and I, I, I think it's very appropriate. I actually say that not just anybody can buy one of these caps. Like you have to be willing to wear it for its history, which in Robbie's case, it's very much about having the conviction and having openness. That's your revolution. I mean, and you don't, you're not making a revolution happen. Mm -hmm. You're not saying, I want to make this Robbie revolution. But by the people that you collect around you, you're creating now a social force, which now the culture becomes a powerful entity that I think we as scientists of culture could look at from another viewpoint of what can this force of collectives all having the same values, i.e., conviction and openness mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what can they do what can they accomplish where will they go yeah yeah i mean that's what i'm looking forward to that's what the future holds Yay. you know and um i more and more have come to believe that it's it's uh it's it's helping spread a level of self-acceptance you know like so much of the pain caused in the world is is from this internal pain that happens for people and then it just all becomes externalized and that if we can live an example of, of accepting ourselves and accepting somebody in front of us for who they are like that's going to do more than any kind of protest tell me Robbie hmm. when did that become apparent to you it's <sighs> a good question I um I think it became clear to me after the umpteenth self-development seminar that there's it just hit me that there's actually no work to do you know mm -hmm. that there's nothing to do mm. and that's the key and the my the struggle has been in 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 thinking something's wrong in trying to find something and trying to find a solution in that that all that self-help development work came from feeling like i'm broken yeah and um it was just this liberating feeling to start to see events come up and be, be like Whoa, it's kind of a burden off just to not go and just to be and live and have fun. And and I think it also started for me where I, I realized I was having success in my career launching this, this, this new phase of it and I wasn't having any fun. And I saw friends who were and I asked my friend Shane and he said, here's the trick to having fun. He said, just look at people who are having fun and do what they do. That's the whole <laughs> trick to having fun. And it's going to be different for everybody. You know, your answer to that might be different from mine. And I saw, wait, it's improv comedy. That's those are the people I think are having the most fun, <laughs> yeah. and that's where I started to do it and started to realize like there is this higher intelligence that comes through. You know, if if you've ever seen really good improv comedy, long form, where they're creating stories on the fly, like there is some really trippy stuff going on there. Like they are tapping into intuition on a group mind level, and. <laughs> It's like that I'm like that is some sexy fun hot stuff that that looks great. That you're going to bring into companies and yes. corporations. Yes. See, I mean that's the that's the thing that's exciting to me about you, okay? Hmm. Is that I have plenty of friends in the world of improv comedy and as having a past life as an entertainer, like I understand <laughs> that world and I love to play in that world. Oh, I would just play <laughs> in that world as long as I possibly could. Yeah. And with that said, 
there came a point when I was like, but I, I want to bring this other places. Like this, how do I, is that okay? Like, can I want to, you know, and I think it's quite an odd thing in some ways, in some regards. It's certainly a challenging thing for me to bring who I am into a company sitting. And I look at you and I see you having, I think you, you have an MBA, correct? No, no. No, mm-hmm. no that's right. You started in film. Yeah. You got your degree in film. Right. Okay. So see, you started in the art as well. You yeah. started in art and then somewhere along the line, and the story I'd love to hear is when you decided, I want to bring this work to a corporate or company setting. Like why, why bring the art into what is considered to be the money-making um, entities of our country? It's mm. a good question. I mean, for as a film major, I think there's 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 a lot there's a strong connection between film and transformation. Every story tends to follow that story arc, myth of the hero, the 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 person who starts the journey was not qualified to do what they were set out to do, but they become that person by doing it. You know, so that's and that's where I started to really become interested in in the work of coaching and transformation and realized that Doing it on a company level is just like major league. Like yes. you can you can do it on an individual level, and like we said, companies are just made up of individuals, right? That's right. So, like adding that higher dimension of how do you do it with a group um, gets really just exciting. Well, right, and it, and it, and I think powerful, mm-hmm. and, and powerful on many levels. But one specifically, which you hear me talk about a lot, is the fact that you have a super organization. You have a super organism. You don't have just one organism. Mm-hmm. You have multiple people that are now holding values in a company, and they're now they're going to make some change with that. So you don't have just the power of one person. You have the power of many. Yeah. Right. So you're affecting the power of many with this work by bringing this work into an organization. Right. Is it more complicated than working with an individual? Um, certainly, because there are more of them to to deal with. So there's more <laughs> dynamics to it. Um, and there, it, it's interesting how numbers make a difference, right? So it's like like the Dunbar number. The tribes are about 150 people. There yes. are things that break down after that. Um, and there's uh, um, um other numbers within there. I was remember I was at Pixar and they said that at least at the time, I don't know where it is now, but they said they were really committed not to growing beyond 1500 because that's the number they found where the major breakdowns happen. I don't know why that number, I begged them to tell me why or where they found it from, but they, that's where they were committed to. Um, and it's interesting to think back, like to me, this group culture work is just like when it's done, right? It's a big party. And I was always <laughs> obsessed with parties as a kid. Like I, I do you remember, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes, of course. There was a game version of it. And at one point, they get to a party. And I could never get to that in the game. I always wanted to. And then in high school, my parents wouldn't let me go to parties. So I always wanted to get to this elusive, amazing <laughs> idea. And we'd watch, like, weird science. You know, these epic level parties. And that's what I'm thinking, like, oh, my God. Parties are amazing. <laughs> Adorable. And, you know, senior year, I finally got to go. And I, lo- I was like, I've been waiting my life for this. Like, this is a bunch of people sitting around and drinking. Like, this is the party. And I think it was that contrast for me of like, wait a minute, there's so much potential for what a party can be. I've seen John Hughes movies. Like, (laughs) there's you, this could be epic. Uh And then seeing what it wasn't. And then, like, wanting to create better parties. And that's basically what you're doing in a corporate (laughs) setting. Yeah. Courageous. (laughs) It's fun. It's fun. I think it, it's it's this weird kind of 
healthy selfishness it takes to make these things work, you know? Because, like, whenever I, like, I've gone into cultures where people say, oh, I want this for my team, you know? But if, if you don't have it for yourself, it's not going to work. If you're doing everything for your team and sacrificing everything, it's like having this overbearing parent who wants you to have everything, but you get this sense like they don't have it for themselves. So? So it always starts with, with what do you want? You know, what do you want to the for business you? owner? Yeah. To the business owner. Right. And you have to come in holding that energy. So you get to be the party. You have to be the party. You are required to be the self accepting, courageous, and open party that enters into a corporation and asks first and foremost the business owner to be that and figure out what he wants. And then you bring that into the company and have a big party. Totally. Which is why, actually, I'm going to make the call right now. The biggest trend in leadership that I think is going to happen next. Is um, is a book called – it just came out, and it's called Host Leadership. And it makes the entire analogy to a party as to why the best leaders are the best hosts. Wow. Yeah. Love it's it. It's really cool. Love it. Host leadership. Host leadership. Yeah. Yes. Because what's happened is what we, we came from this dynamic of um, hero leadership. That came from like the yep. army, right? I'm the hero. I'm the best. I'm going to save the day. I'm going to do all that. That being leadership. And then it got turned over into what people started to call service-based leadership. Yep. I am serving you. I No, no, no. It's not me, the leader. I'm actually the servant. I'm serving you right. the entire staff. And I'm going to die doing it. Yes. I will do whatever it takes to serve <laughs> you, my team. Serve, serve, serve. Yes. Two extremes. Mm-hmm. And what party hosting is, it does both. You're taking both. It's like next level. So... Um, yeah. Oh, it's hot. It's totally <laughs> it hot. really hot. The, I know the author personally, great guy. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that I'm actually basing my university class I'm going to teach based on that book to experiment with it because I actually haven't read it yet. I've just heard him talk about it. Um, but I want to play with that. And these kids immediately get it, right? They get parties. They're like, wait a minute. This, this is leadership, just being hosting a great party? And yeah, and that can be the, the lab for it. Do you do... Anything When you're culture architecting with a company, mm-hmm. do you do anything other than give them a mirror to work with themselves and encourage concepts like host leadership? Um, it's basically that. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of like um, – I, I, I think of it like, like being a hiker on a trail. Right, like I, I might be a little more ahead and have done the trail a few times and can see things and can see where things are. It doesn't make me a better, like I'm not a better hiker. I've just, I'm just have have seen this trail before and have seen parts on it that you need to look at. Right, so there's like, like I can, I can say as you're climbing up this part, check out this, beware of this. So an example of that is negative values. Like sometimes people will create values and they'll say, wait a minute, I really want honesty and respect. But it's coming from a place of that you what you don't want. Mm-hmm. You're like trying to say, oh, I don't want people to rip me off. And that energy comes through. Um, you know, or how much like the idea of integrity. It, it's actually it, – it needs to be a, a, a non-starter because if you don't have integrity, you don't have any other value. So if you're not willing to say I'm going to have integrity no matter what – then don't do the values work because you're just going to skip on those values too. So it's those kind of insights just to say, hey, like we've, we've worked on these kind of things before. These are things to be aware of as you're going down this trail. One of the things that I love the very mu- most about your upcoming book, The Culture Blueprint, mm-hmm. is that you talk about culture being based on feeling and that, that, or that it's, it's, it's sort of navigated by feeling. And I'm using my own words right now, yeah. so feel free to correct the mm-hmm. audience and us and your listeners at, at a moment's notice. But 
what I loved is that you said you give the business owner and the company power to change the culture by asking them to take responsibility for their feelings. Mm -hmm. And that's much of what I was hearing from you a second ago, which was, are you, are you really want integrity? Do you feel like, I mean, there's got to be some alignment Mm -hmm. or congruent coherence that needs to occur within the business owner with their own feelings set. And you say, you need to take responsibility for that, right? And, yeah. and you're giving them that not just to the business owner, but to the team as a whole. At least that's what I got from your book, and I loved it. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to hear you describe it that way. I, I can see it as that lens for you because you're so feelings-based. Yes. Like, I rarely use the word uh, a whole lot. Feeling? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do. I say culture is a feeling. Yeah. But I immediately try to get them to somewhere where it's practical. Right. I know. As to, what, well, you know, what do you feel about this? And, sure. and get it to be grounded in whatever they're experiencing. So ground it for us. Hmm. Is it true? So here's my question. Here's what I, Robin, want to know. Yeah. I want to know if it's true that a company, any individual within a company, can shift the company's culture, or at least help shift the company's culture, by taking responsibility for how they feel. Brilliant. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the thing about it is that um, they may be changing a small part of it and not realizing how big an impact it has. So... um, I'll give you an example of this. Like I, I, I didn't realize this till going through it that some people on my team were complaining about a small little glitch in the software that I didn't think was a big deal. And um, when they changed it, it had a huge impact. It was a small little glitch that, that created an error in their process, internal, not for the customer. And I didn't realize how much that little glitch kept annoying them hour after hour day after day and to me it was a little thing but to them it would consistently happen and it was a consistent drain and so oftentimes when we think about culture we think we got to change the whole vision the whole values the whole how we're interacting but it comes down to these little moments that either inspire you or really bug you and if if you're operating at a level where you know you can say you know what my team doesn't get along with this one. I'm going to throw a little happy hour or I'm going to do this one task to, to help with this particular issue we've got going on. Um, it can make a big difference. And I, I, I see people um, kind of like hold on to their complaints almost like a safety blanket as opposed to wanting to do something about it. And that's why there's those two conversations about culture. Either you're talking about the reasons why you can't or you're talking about experiments to try. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. And what have you seen to be the most successful? If you is it the most successful experiment come to mind of something that you have been involved in with a company? To me, it continues to amaze me how much um, how much the business process can feel dehumanizing. Yes. And how we don't get to know people. There was this great moment where I was where where somebody was com- uh, a, a, a director was complaining about um, that one of their people needed to get something from another department. And they wouldn't get it to them because it wasn't important to their job. And he keeps going on and on. I cut him off. I said, look, I'll, I'll tell you what's going on here. The two heads, the two heads of the departments, the directors, they don't like each other. And everybody in the room was like, they couldn't believe that I gleaned that from that little thing. Uh-huh. But I knew that if the two heads of it really liked each other, they'd really want to help each other and solve each other's problems, even though they don't have to. But if they don't, they're like, forget it. I've got, I've got my job to do over here. Uh-huh. Like, why are you bothering me about this shit? Right? Uh-huh. So it's all, it tends to always be something around how can we humanize this? Yes. How can we 
like when somebody says they want to get buy-in and they want to get somebody to change this or that, I say, I say, how well do you know how do they do their job? How much do you know about their family? How much do you know about what they like and what they don't like? Because if you don't know them on that level, they're not going to give a shit about that thing that you want on your project that they don't care about. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from this conversation for mm. all for humanity, for, so. for the listeners. Yeah, because I think that, and it goes back to why you appreciate a question as well. Hmm. Because a question, what does it do? But it opens the doorway for the person that you're relating with or the people that you're relating with to A, feel like they actually give a shit. Mm -hmm. To B, actually be interested in creating something with you because they want your part. They're saying, I want to dance with you. I don't want to masturbate. Yeah. I mean, there's a big difference there. <laughs> yes. But that's actually what we're talking about. Right, right. We're talking about how do you dance with somebody. And what you're saying, and I think that this is really in one of the ways that business has gone wrong in my outside opinion, is um, the ethics of business. And I think that sometimes, sometimes the ethics within larger corporations can get very confused. And I think that in it, what, why? Because it's dehumanized. Mm. I think that's the only reason why. The only reason why is they're just not connected to what they're doing. Yeah. So by creating, <laughs> I actually, I feel like you're going to say something. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, I, I heard this amazing example of what you're saying yeah. where um, I was listening to this podcast by Duncan Trussell, and I think, I think he might have been on Joe Rogan's, and he was saying how, um, making that point so well in that he, he said, we, He'll find out about a war going on on like CNN, like people really being killed, and but then found that like that that this bug that was right in front of him that he had to kill, like he had way more emotion for that bug yes. in front of him when you're yes. trying to kill yes. than yes. like these yes. people getting killed yes. around the world, right? Because it's like it's so tangible and in your face. That's right. We have to deal with it. Why do we call our pig pork and our cow beef? Mm, yeah, that's a great point. It, it takes away the animal. Aspect. It takes away. We don't have to eat it. We don't have to deal with being connected to it. Right. I mean, the, the, you could do this. The rainforest. Like, if we actually lived in the rainforest, yeah. needing to save the rainforest wouldn't even be an issue. <laughs> right? Right. We're in relationship with it. In fact, we're so much in relationship with, with the rainforest in that point that we are, our livelihood depends on it. And I think that most things come down to survival. And I think the connection for humans, social interrelationships are our survival. And so I think it makes sense for any company to invest in getting their relationships up to par. Yeah. So yeah. So do you look at the future and do you think more, I'll give you a buy, I know it's like a false dichotomy, but are you more of the, like, we are fucked, we got to change things or uh, like things are really going to be awesome, the future looks great? Ooh. <laughs> um, ooh. Neither. Neither? Nope. What I'm do you right feel? in the middle. Like you look at the future. No, I'm, I'm right. I don't. I think that everything is so dependent upon our actions in this moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more people connect to the connection of this, like connect to the moment, mm -hmm. literally connect to what's happening around them, their families, their companies, their interrelationships, that that is going to create it in either direction. I mean, I, I would say that I am definitely more of a positivist. But it's only because of believing that people have the ability to connect to the moment and to each other and that we are gearing towards that. I feel like like your profession, being successful at your profession, is an indicator of humanity's urge yeah. 
to connect to what's in front of them and to to care about human dynamics, human relationships, and relationships with other beings as well. So I do believe. So to answer your question, I am the pathway towards we're not fucked but we do need to put some i'm also the heavy hand that's like yo pay a little more attention here like Mm. we need to wake up wake up like the dehumanization thing and the de being a nation thing meaning not just humans but all beings is i think what's destroying us Hmm. yeah so how do you how do you think we get humanized to that like how do we connect yeah i mean Mm. Or is that even mm. our role? Like, are we going around looking for problems we don't have, trying to connect with problems that aren't, you know? I think we do have problems. I mean, I think that there are larger environmental problems that are indicative to our very survival as a species. See, this is where I'm either... I don't know if I'm an optimist or just so naive. A rocket. Let's hear it. But it feels good. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I see something like, you know, recycling. Yeah. You know? And I don't feel like... The earth rides on my recycling more. I feel like, like, um, or even with fuel efficiency so much. Like, I see science got us into this, and that same innovation gets us through this of saying, you know what, science is going to say, here's the way that we can have really fuel-efficient cars and and make that really easy for everybody. And here's a scientific way that we can clean up the skies. Like, if you think about it, like, I heard that I, I was, you know, barely live back then, but in, in the seventies that the valley here in LA was just a total smog pit. And now it's not. Compared to the seventies, it's way better. Yep. And that like these kind of solutions that we're developing, the people who really care about them. And if we each focus on what we really care about, then we're gonna be good. I think that I think it's about asking what if. I think that science is based on asking what if and mm-hmm. it's the human's capacity to be able to reverse engineer the answer. So we've asked what if over and over and over again about about how we can get all the technologies that have now put us into this place where we're like, uh-oh, we need to ask other questions. We need to ask other questions to get us out of the painful places that could be hinging on our survival. Yeah. So I do think that what got us into it got us out of it, and I think it comes down to asking the right questions, and we're back to questions again. I really think it comes back to asking questions and using the human superpower, which as far as we know, no other species has it, which is the ability to, re- to ask the question and reverse engineer the answer. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I th- I, th- I think that um, in, in some ways the problems are way worse than we think, in the sense of that. Like, have you ever Googled the term um, UN population projections? No. Like, it's in this deep report they did, but it basically shows that like, like just through the rule of of exponential growth, the number of people that are going to be on the planet, say, like 100 years from now, you know, beyond us, but just just only into the future, like 100 years, is just going to be huge. And even another 100 years beyond, you start to see, like, wait a minute, we are really going to need some type of major shift in energy or spaceships or other planets to inhabit that, like, that that exponential growth curve just shows, wait a minute, things are going to get kind of weird. So, so how do you see your work in the world um, touching that at all, if at all? Does it touch that change that is projected? I think it does just in the sense of um, I think whatever created us, whatever higher intelligence has gone into our formation of DNA and our brain cells and anything that, that, that's going on right now, somehow created such amazing biodiversity that things get taken care of. 
you know, there are certain jobs where I can't imagine doing them. You know, like I, it just it just either disgusts me or like like there's no way I would want to do that. And there are people who actually really want to do that and enjoy it. Blows my mind. But there, everything somehow gets done. You know, it's not like everybody said, you know, like everybody in the world wants to direct TV shows and we don't have any doctors and there's this huge problem that nobody wants to see blood and open up bodies, right? Yeah. It's like we've got this weird programming where everything gets taken care of. Yeah, and so my right. belief around right. it is that if we all get in touch with whatever that thing is, it's almost like the Lego movie. You see the Lego movie? No. You've got to see uh, Really? Got, oh, it's one of the I best movies the I've Lego ever movie? seen. Really? Ever. Wow. It's amazing. Okay. I and don't watch movies. I would watch that. You will love it. The Lego, because you're yes. telling me. Yes. Okay, so, <laughs> so the Lego movie. Yeah, and you get in touch with that thing that you do. What is that thing that only you are here to do and express and make happen in the world? Oh. And that if we all get in touch with those that thing, um, that's what's ultimately going to be great for the planet. What do you do first thing in the morning? I get a drink of water. First thing, pretty much. Uh-huh. I actually have by my bed. I, yeah. I I mix salt into it too. Okay, it helps for uh, adrenals. adrenals. Yeah, and um, and then I do a meditation, like a twenty minute meditation. Would you be willing to share that with us? Sure. I for a while it was uh, TM transcendental meditation, uh-huh. and now I've been experimenting with um, um, with the four part meditation where it's five minutes of just simple acceptance of just acceptance of anything mm. like. If I'm having crazy thoughts, crazy thoughts, peaceful, whatever's happening in those five minutes, those five minutes. Uh Next five minutes is things I'm grateful for. The Mm. next five minutes is things I want. And then the last five minutes is just letting go and and seeing what happens and just being there with it. Do you use a timer for the five-minute installments? I sometimes do and I sometimes don't. Right. Um, I learned from a friend, Jesse Elder, of of the Gamma Group, and... um, um, it's 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 a real cool one, yeah. So those are rituals. What we're talking about is your yeah. morning ritual. One of the things that I also love in the culture blueprint mm-hmm. is that you talk about the need for rituals in a company, that it can actually be a really healthy entity to draw people together. And one of my favorite rituals that you talk about yeah. is the induction ritual. Mm-hmm. That when we when the employees come into a company and they, what, you just, you get your desk and they just, <laughs> hey, start working, buddy. Right. But really, they're spending more of their life at the company than they probably are with their partner, who yeah. they married and they have this big wedding <laughs> ceremony for. Right. But why is there no ceremony when you come to work? So you talk about the induction ritual. Yeah. And I would just love to hear more about that. You know where you. I first experienced that? I didn't mention this in the book. But where I really had an experience of that was in my college fraternity. And it was a really strong ritual. And it was something where, like, it was so cool. I actually, during it, I started laughing so hard because I was enjoying it so much. To me, a laugh can sometimes just be this big extension of a smile. And they thought I was laughing at them like like I was making fun of it. But it was just that I was enjoying myself so much through it that (laughs) I I just started laughing. I get like that. Yeah. And it was this amazing, like, it, like it involved um, death and rebirth. It involved wow. like just it was very ritualistic, uh-huh. and it just like, and then you emerge from it. And um, the idea of that, the rite of passage, is something that's been in in anthropological history for just a long time, and it really it it helps with um, what are called liminal states. Mm-hmm. States that are in the in between, where you're not quite, where you haven't left the old world completely, and you're not in the new world completely, and that's what it is coming into any new organization. Is you're not quite out of your last life, and you're not quite into this new one. And so, having a rite of passage 
um, like an induction ritual, um, makes it something really special that you never forget, and then you feel much more tied to the culture. I love it. I love yeah. it. And have you seen this done successfully? Are there any examples you can give? Oh, well, Zappos is, was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it was just incredible. To, like, you get nicknames during it. You we, um, we would hear about the values, people telling stories. We would do these fun games with each other. We would... Um, you know, the, the thing I related about it that blew my mind was the first time I put on the headphones and we were getting calls to return shoes, we all put them on all at the same time, the whole floor of us. And I felt like it, the image that I had in my head was the image of the first NASA rocket launch. Like, that's how it felt, how much pride I felt in uh, this is the first time I get to don the headphone. You get to don the headphone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's brilliant. I love that. So you yeah. felt like you were part of a... Of uh, <laughs> the word that was going to come to mind is cult. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, in in a, in a great way. In and, a great way. Yeah. See, but I think that we need that as humans. Totally. I think that we're aching to feel part of. Call it a cult or call it a family. Like call it a tribe or call it a team. Like yeah. we are aching for that. Totally. We're dying for it. I know. I know. But how do we get more of it? <laughs> I think I, it's a great question. I mean, I certainly want to experiment with ways to get, get more of it. I mean, um, I, I'm going to leave that as an open-ended question because that is that is what I want more of in a way that feels really genuine and authentic and fun. Cool. Yeah, a moment of silence for that yeah. potent thought. Yeah. So I want to ask: Is there um, is there anything else before we wrap up? Uh, like that's that's a curiosity or lingering question? Yeah, yeah, there is. Do you think a company has a soul? <laughs> that's a great question. Um. I, I do, but not in the sense of, like, the way we think of a soul in our life. Like, the way I think of, like, a soul in our life is that it's it's always there with us. It's going to go on beyond death. Um, you know, it's that thing that, that's, that's beyond this world that stays with us. And I think that does exist for a company. Um, but unlike the spiritual soul that I'm thinking of for an individual, it can, it can be created and destroyed. So there was a time when it didn't exist, and it's not so eternal that you can just have it and know you're going to have it forever. It, you can destroy it. Um, but when the time when, – when that group does come together, there is something very real that exists beyond the, the, the tangible world that connects everybody in that group together. And it may be for that, just that, for that period of time and then be gone. I think that you mentioned something – about how what's neat about culture is that be it will live beyond the charismatic CEO. Mm-hmm. It will live beyond the tagline. Oh, that the culture. I think this was you. Yes, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. the culture mm-hmm. has a longevity beyond those elements. Yeah, um, and so if you um, so there is a longevity if, if we're connecting soul to something that is long lasting if you are in this moment connecting right. to soul to something that's long lasting it sounds like the place that it might be most um, touchable 
would be culture. Yeah, I mean, I think about it like a movie, right? In that, like, it's it's incredible when a film crew comes together and all the creative yes. elements, and that's like that was that culture. And the film is like the artifact. It's it's the it that's what lives on. So that culture existed is is done. It, it happened in a moment of time. There was a beginning, middle, and end. But that film can be re-experienced and re-experienced. And so, what's the part that's the film in a company? I think it's it's what the company's creating. Oh, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. And that's why I've, I've heard in, in in many different levels the people. Some people say um, this was uh, um, the McCarthy's work. They're they're they come from the software development work world. They said you can tell a culture from a product. Yes. You know, like the way you open an Apple product, you can tell this is a culture of excellence. This is a detail oriented culture. This is a design oriented culture. Um, and that that's that's how the culture lives on is through that product, right? That their their product lives the brand, yeah. yeah. And the culture lives the brand. The brand is the culture, yeah. It's all sort of connected there in an incestuous, perfect way. Yeah, and that's why it's interesting to see where like people might cut corners, you know, and just to see what um um. where they're willing to sacrifice. And I, it's interesting that I don't think there has to be a sacrifice. Like one of the things I think about Apple and Apple would probably be majorly disagree with me on this, but I think Apple doesn't give a shit about customer service. I think they're great at it because they love excellence. And they said, Oh, if, if this is part of business, we're going to be excellent at this shit. Cause we're the shit and we're doing excellent shit. We care about being excellent. So guess what? You're going to find our customer service to be excellent. It, <laughs> So you can get it all if you fully, fully dedicate to those things that that you want. Um, so, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. Well, uh, well. So can you can a company create soul, more soul? What would it look like for a company to create more soul in it, in itself? I see it in those moments where where committing to what they really care about might mean they'll lose money or might mean they will um, um, have to lose something. And that's when it's tested. Oh, what a perfect answer. (laughs) And I say perfect in the sense that it connects so much to the storyline of the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. It's in the test, it's in the hardship that we grow to greatness. Right. We have a choice, though. We yes. could we could limit ourselves and stay small and complain, as you said. There are the complainers and there are the growers, and that in this sense, there's an opportunity for growth within the hardship. Yeah, that's so beautiful, and that's what you have witnessed firsthand by working with the the various companies that you've worked with. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 oftentimes things that don't make sense at the time, and you don't even know. Like it, it, in retrospect, it looks like such a great decision i mean think about think about apple like they they sought out to be the greatest computer company um and they they failed they failed the the pc is dominating but they they committed to design and excellence and by doing that they revolutionized the phone industry the music industry like all these other areas and they didn't become the greatest computer company in the world they became the greatest company in the world, the biggest, most profitable brand, Mm. that's what comes as a result of being dedicated to that over those big results that you think you want. 
you think this happens in cities as well? I'm thinking about you just got back from Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. and you love you loved it. You yeah. raved about how much you loved it, how you would even move there. And I have no idea why exactly, <laughs> and I haven't been there myself. I do oh, love really? Dallas, mm-hmm. yes. Um, but do you think that it's the same thing? Do you think a, a city like Austin gets its soul or something, you know, it attracts a Robbie because because it has dealt with hardships in a way that has made it grown as well as committed to its values like Apple did and that makes it a sexy thing. Like I'm asking you from your perspective, why do you love Austin? And then we can see if that's true or not. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know. I mean, why I love it is... Um I was amazed by how much people care about great food. People <laughs> care about great, yeah. great music. You know, and right. it's, I've seen it. In, I won't name any names, but certain places in LA where I'm like, you are only filled up with great, like like a lot of people right now, because you have this amazing location yeah. and your food is terrible. And like you don't like there's there's no care about that, uh-huh. and you can see feel it in the way it's served, in the way it's presented, in the way that it looks, in the way that it tastes. But you can get away with it. Yeah. And in that town, it's like <laughs> the exact opposite. It's like they might have like no customers there, but they really care about the food and what they're presenting and what they're what went into it. And it's like the the music too. Everybody like there's so much con- you can tell everywhere you went. I didn't hear top forty music anywhere. Every, <laughs> wow, you're kidding. Anywhere it was all just soulful, oh. beautiful music of all kinds of genres. All kinds of genres, and people were so friendly, and they would joke around. That's one of my biggest tests for a culture. If like, right. if they're able to combine these two elements, this is a secret. Okay, hack. Yeah, if if you've got this, you've got a great culture. The ability to really joke around, and in a moment's notice, change over to getting shit done, mm. and then in a moment's notice, change back, mm. and interplay between the two. It's genius. Makes a genius person too. So I guess then my final question yeah. is: Is there a correlation in your mind between the individual, the company, and the city in terms of culture? Is that a correlation? Yes. What's needed? Ah, it's a great question. I know it from the sense of like, um, um. You know, when I was at Zappos, we had to build the Zappos Insights program from scratch. We didn't get any marketing resources. We had to find our – we were literally like dialing for customers at first because it had to start off the Zappos brand. And um, we got a lot of traction really quickly. And people were surprised at the growth. And I just was – I knew Vegas was doing half the work because people were like looking for an excuse to come to Vegas. So it, it had this mystique. It had this, this is this playground. This is this fun place. And it did half the work of getting people there. Uh-huh. I mean, I think if the company was out in the middle of Nebraska, we wouldn't have gotten a lot right, of people right. coming out for their corporate trips. So the city did half the work. Um, and so I, I only know it in the context of that kind of like an experiential-based business. And I think that's certainly true for Austin. I just went to a mastermind event there. And like we – I remember we were in the hotel lobby of the Hilton with a portable – speaker having a dance party in the lobby like and huh. people were totally cool with it you yeah. know and it's like only in austin i think that'd be just everybody's like cool with us having our own dance party in the hilton lobby yeah um so to me it connects i would be really curious now you kind of like create an open loop question in my mind of how the city does relate to other kinds of businesses yeah because it must 
It must. It must. And the individuals, what they're thinking about. I mean, you got the you got the full culture of a city, you know. Right. But what what is going on with those individuals to make it so they do care about the music, so that they do care about the food? Yeah. You know, something's going on there. It's Something. collective, right? Totally. Yeah. And yeah, we'll say, I don't know how much time you spent in Dallas, but I just got back from there with Tony Robbins' event and yeah, the Power yeah. Within. Uh-huh. And there was a, um, a, a restaurant in the hotel. Now, I don't normally like restaurants and hotels. Like, I'm not, you know, whatever. This best restaurant, I probably one of the top 10 restaurants I've been to in my life. Really? Like, I mean, that's a lot of restaurants. Yeah. Phenomenal. Okay. And so. This was, is at the Omni Dallas. I've stayed there. That <laughs> restaurant is mind-blowing. I wrote them about it. So I went it's mind-blowing. And the culture is amazing. If you go on, they have this whole thing called like the service of one or something like this. Yeah. They, they, it's their protocol. It's their values that they show their employees, which I don't know how they're doing it, but somebody's holding up a mirror really well for them because they are enacting those cultural values so well. And the food is amazing. It's mind-blowing. They, they even grow the garden food. I can't believe you've been there. Do they really? They grow it. They have, okay, so my waitress, who I was saying... You, this is blowing my mind. But yeah. what, and it's not even, it doesn't even cost a lot. Like, it's not a high expensive thing. It's just right. amazing. I told her, I'm like, how is the food this good? She's like, well, we grow it all. It's just right here. Do you want to take, do you want to take a walk after you're finished eating and look at our herb garden? No way. <laughs> wow. And they also serve pure crack. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, meaning like the biscuits? And- no, that spice they have on the table. Okay. You, did you try no, it? No, I missed the you pure missed crack. You missed the pure crack. This is like... <laughs> The top of the the chair on top. They have this stuff that is, I think, it's this mix of like spicy salt and sugar that you just want to freebase. Like it's it's amazing. I mean, I just wanted. I was freebasing off their whole buffet. I can only imagine if I had the crack. I brought it home to people, and they they were like, "Where'd you get this crack? Where did you get this crack?" Like so, Omni Dallas, baby. Yeah, Omni Dallas. All right, Austin. Good work. Texas. Texas knows where it's at. They're really... I think they're, they're starting to. I don't know that they necessarily always have. Now, that could just be my own little closed-mindedness, but all of a sudden, I feel like it's coming on the map, and every person that I think is practically one of the most cool people in the entire universe has either lives there or is moving there or has a house there. Really? Yes. There is something about Texas right now that is huge, and it does make me want to get a cowgirl hat. I like cowgirl hats. <laughs> I wonder how much it has to do with, with how... Pro business, they are. That's what I think. I, the business people, they're busy. The people that I love that are there are business people. There's yeah. no question about it. And I know that it probably has to do with the taxes, etc. But they're just really excellent people, and it says something about business. Yeah, you know, you're playing the big game. It's a big game, and the world is moved by money right now. So I really want to commend you. Yeah, I th- I think it, I think it combines the the. It's one of the few places I've seen combine the deep roots of Southern culture and hospitality with a let's kick some butt pro business kind there of. There we attitude. go. It's kind of, see you like dynamism. Mm-hmm. You're, you're 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 see the you're doing the charisma code. <laughs> you got it down. Yes, you got it down. Is that is is the book out right now? Charisma code. Nope, comes out next year. Nice. Yep, spring of 2015. And robinsoul.com, that's where they find out that's about it? That's how they find out about it. Tell us about cultureblueprint.com. When do we get our hand, hot hands on that? It's going to be January 17th, 2015. It's going to be um, coming out in hardback, beautiful hardback, and uh. Uh, a very special audio release that you've experienced. Which is why I was able to say, ask him what I asked him. Yes, I did get to experience It's extraordinary. If you think Robbie's voice sounds great now, which he does have an excellent voice, I know, but... 
on this, the audio recording. It's extraordinary. Thank you. Yep, you're welcome. So that comes out same time? Yeah. Okay. And where do they go for this? Cultureblueprint.com. Okay. Yeah. A bunch of free resources on there, too. That um, Did I ever send you the meditation? Mm-mm. I didn't? No. Oh, I'll have to send you that. No, I like Yeah, that. I call it the Culture Reset. Because if you can do a five-minute minute just to reset you know, your own emotions, it can have a huge impact on everybody around you. So I developed this five-minute meditation. Um, it's, it's my own words um, and, and visualization. But behind it is J.S. Epperson's work. He's a binaural beats musician. Nice. And so it gets into this beautiful, relaxing theta stage. And it's five-minute meditation. You feel like it's like... Like you went to another world and back with the combination of the words visualization and his music. Um, so I'm excited to release that too. Is there anything that scares you about it? What do you mean? The release. Um, it's been so long in the making that I'm just like ready. I totally feel that. <laughs> I just have to live with you. I, I know, and I'm just, just as a little side testimonial here, um, that book what he's talking about, the culture blueprint, I would listen to over and over and over again. It is so chock full Thank of you. information. Thank you. And, you know, the fact that there's also free resources that folks can get this mm-hmm. meditation, which, yes, please send to me. Absolutely. Cultureblueprint.com. Correct. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Robin. Oh, it's, it's Robin Soul. Robin, S-O-L.com. Look it up. She's got amazing questions which I think apply to so many different domains and because, um, yeah I'm sorry but I'm just gonna yeah, say go I will I, I will use my courage my conviction <laughs> my openness and my humor to change my website after your um, uh, stately articulation <laughs> of what needed to be changed on it in such a manner that fits with my personal needs Yes. 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 And hopefully we'll serve you, uh, viewers, robinsoul.com. Thank you for putting that out there. I do appreciate that. My pleasure. My pleasure. Awesome. I hope you come on again. Thank you. This was, this was a real joy. Robbie, you were wonderful to speak with. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.